So the reading is taken from Luke 4, verses 16 to 20. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. That's the word of the Lord. So, just wanted to start with a question. When was the last time that the Holy Spirit moved you to action? Maybe it was one week at church when you saw somebody sitting on their own and you thought, actually, I'm going to go over and I'm going to chat to them. Maybe it was at work when you saw something going on that seemed kind of untoward and the Holy Spirit just moved you to stand up for what was right. Maybe if you're Amanda, it was a few moments ago when you needed to go and uh, turn off the alarm, and the Holy Spirit really moved in that, and I'm grateful for it. But maybe you're a bit like me, and at the moment, you're looking around at what's going on in the world, and you're feeling a little bit lost. In fact, you're wanting the Holy Spirit to intervene and to tell you what to do, but it seems you don't quite know how to proceed. In recent kind of days and weeks and months, I found myself increasingly just praying, Holy Spirit, would you move in our world? Last week, we started this series on the Holy Spirit, and we heard about how the Holy Spirit is not an abstract thing. Uh, It's not even like the way that we get to talk to God. The Holy Spirit is God. It's the third person of the Trinity. And because of that, he is powerful to change our situations. In our passage tonight, we hear Jesus read out these old words from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. That's one of the prophets who is in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me. In doing this, Jesus is affirming that the same Spirit who was present at the beginning of creation with God the Father and with Jesus, and who had been present and active through the whole of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, was now here, present, alive, and active in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit was beginning a new chapter with Jesus. It would kind of be like if you like movie soundtracks. Uh, So my personal favorite is the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. I've listened to it so many times, I can't even tell you. And it would be that crescendo, that climax of the symphony where all the instruments come in and you really feel like it's just the, 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 the the pinnacle of that piece of music. So for the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, for me, it would be when uh, they're all uh, coming up, the fellowship are all coming up over the crest of a mountain, or when the army is rushing from Helm's Deep. The point is that the Holy Spirit here is doing something different. In that synagogue in first century Judea, Jesus announced through the justice 
and the compassion of the Holy Spirit that he had come to fulfill those words from Isaiah, to bring hope and to bring forgiveness, which would transform us and our world from top to bottom. So before we look at this, let's just pray that the Holy Spirit would move in us tonight. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and presence yourself here. Thank you for how you have been moving and working in each one of us. Lord, we pray just as we were singing a few moments ago for a fresh wind, for your spirit to do something new in us and in our world. Help us, Lord, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of it too. In Jesus' name, amen. So, picture the scene. It's 2,000 years ago, and Jesus walks into a synagogue. Don't worry, this is not going to be one of those weird jokes where Jesus walks into a bar. That's what comes into my head, but that's not what this means. He's walking into his local synagogue, and in front of all the people who presumably saw him grow up, who'd known him from a small child, he asks the attendant for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads out some of the most famous words of the Jewish scriptures. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I mean, that's some mission statement. But why did Jesus choose this passage in Isaiah, written centuries before, to read out in front of everyone in the synagogue, kind of like Agnes did just a few moments ago. Well, let's go back, first of all, to explore the context that this part of Isaiah would have been speaking into. If we read the Old Testament, we can see that throughout Israel's history, there was hardly a time when they weren't under the oppression of one nation or another. They were a relatively small nation, so that made them vulnerable. In fact, at one point, they were divided into two kingdoms. At the time Isaiah was speaking into this situation, Israel was experiencing incredible hardship at the hands of the Babylonians. Babylon had invaded their nation, burned down their city, their homes, their security, their very national identity, and worst of all, had torn down the temple where God had dwelt among his people. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was intrinsically linked to the place of the temple. So with it gone, it was tantamount to saying that the spirit had left the building, had abandoned them. Well, that's how it seemed. To top it all off, the people had been driven from their homeland and taken far away to Babylon. We read in Psalm 137 of the depth of their pain at being separated from their homeland, how they sat down and wept by the rivers of Babylon. You might have heard the song that was inspired from that verse. And they ask, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? At this time for Israel, all hope was lost. Now, unfortunately, 
this situation, mass displacement, mass destruction, mass violence, it's not too hard for us to imagine in today's world. Maybe even as I was just saying those things that happened to Israel, you've got places in the world that are just coming to mind where those things are happening right now, where people are suffering under war, where they've been taken captive, where they've had to flee their homeland. Places like Afghanistan, the Yemen, Ukraine, Hong Kong, or even the continued hostility between Israel and Palestine, which I find particularly poignant, given that Jesus stood in a first-century Palestinian context and spoke these words out. It's easy to feel just now that with the climate crisis, a mental health crisis, the refugee crisis, the pandemic, widening inequality, it feels like things couldn't get much worse than right now. Maybe some of us in here feel like that. Personally, I feel really appalled when I read that the 26 richest people in the world own more wealth than the poorest 50%. Somehow, that doesn't feel in line with the Spirit's plan of good news for the poor. What can we do when we face so much inequality, so much injustice, and when we grapple perhaps with our own complicity in these systems that cause so much injustice? It feels like things have never been as bad as this. But when we leaf through the Bible, we don't find a fair-weather God. We don't find stories that can't speak into these deep questions of evil and suffering and injustice. In fact, when we read the Bible, we read about and we experience a God who continually enters into impossible situations through his spirit to enact justice in the world. We read about a Holy Spirit who offers hope which is inextinguishable light in the darkness. Now, I've lived a pretty privileged life. I've known my fair share of suffering in my own way, but I can't pretend to know what it is to live at the sharp end of injustice and to hold on to hope when the outside world feels like a hostile place. I was really struck then when I was reading this beautifully poignant piece of writing from the Anglican priest and scholar Anderson Jeremiah. It was written in a book called Words for a Dying World, Grief and Courage from the Global Church. It's well worth a read if you're interested in how injustice affects uh, the global south in particular. But in this piece of writing, Anderson Jeremiah writes about how the shift to mechanized farming, largely caused by globalization, and the introduction of pesticides in order to keep up with the, the global market in India in the 70s and 80s, how it wreaked havoc on the soil, caused monsoon rivers to dry up, and water scarcity that then led to conflict over that water. Unsurprisingly, it was the poorest who were the hardest hit by these circumstances, and many small tenant farmers had accrued debt to landlords that they couldn't possibly repay. India, because of this, is facing a mental health crisis where farmers are stuck in impossible situations. 
Yet in the face of these awful circumstances, Anderson Jeremiah speaks of hope in this culture. In India, they have a saying that I'm not going to try and repeat, but it translates as hope is a human being's trunk, which means that despite any seemingless, hopeless situation, there's something deeper within us when we dig deep that keeps us fighting. In Tamil, the word for hope and faith are the same. Jeremiah describes how hope in this culture is a communal endeavor, something where people band together. And it results not just in a nice feeling, but an active pursuit of goodness. Amidst Israel's despair then, in their situation of exile, Isaiah prophesies that the spirit of the Lord was at work and that he was on the move, that God had not abandoned his people. The time was at hand when the Spirit would anoint a Messiah who would usher in a new era of justice and compassion. That era was the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which we first hear about in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. It's where every 49 years, those enslaved would be set free debts would be cancelled, and the land was allowed to rest. What the Messiah was promising was a kind of permanent jubilee, total liberation, not for just a part of God's world, but for every facet of injustice that had worked its way in, poverty, slavery, inequality, war, captivity, environmental degradation, and the list goes on. God's spirit would be at the heart of this new world order set in motion by the Messiah. So in the mouth of Jesus, Isaiah's words that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news, this was an announcement, an announcement that after centuries of waiting, after centuries of enduring all kinds of suffering and injustice, of still in Jesus' time, living under the Roman occupation, the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for, who came to bring transformation, had finally arrived. Hope had arrived. The Spirit's plan of justice and compassion was not about partial restoration, but the total global spread of hope in action. Through the Holy Spirit, that hope is accessible to every one of us in this room. Paul talks about us being those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. But that hope was never meant to be hoarded or kept for ourselves. Hope is a gift which the Spirit blesses us with so that we might persevere and participate in the Spirit's plan to see justice in our world. Do we know that? Do we know that we carry with us that assurance, that conviction, that as bearers of the Holy Spirit, as God's ambassadors in the world, we too are called to do as Jesus did, to bring good news to the poor, liberty for the captives and for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
What might happen if tonight every one of us in this room prayed that we would know the hope of the Holy Spirit deep within us? I wonder what change and transformation might be possible. The Holy Spirit is hope on a global scale. But as well as this universal work of justice, Jesus lets us know that the Spirit also wants to do something internal, small scale and individual. Yes, we see the Spirit at work in worldwide movements, things like IJM and Tear Fund and World Vision, but justice starts with the individual. It starts with small decisions, the decision to call out a microaggression in our workplace, to choose not to place that Amazon order because of how they exploit their workers, or not to shop from ASOS or Boohoo because of the massive amounts of clothes that they produce and which end up on the doorstep of our global, of our, the people in the global south, our brothers and sisters. It might even start with a decision to do a meatless Monday or to shop plastic-free to cut down on our carbon footprint. All these small decisions start with our inner motivation, which comes from the Holy Spirit. We read in the Gospels that Jesus cares about our actions, but he knows that that's only half the story. In Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus gives a pretty damning critique of the, of the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. While living for God is a good thing to aim for, just doing good things isn't enough if we don't do it through the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, we won't get very far. We might as well give up on the idea of justice altogether. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim a justice that was not just skin deep, but which would change us from the inside out. And Jesus' concern for us to be internally convicted, it comes across really strongly when we look at the passage he's quoting, Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, in their original languages. The book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament, so it was originally written in Hebrew, and Luke is in the New, so it was written in Greek. And the translation of one particular word in our passage from Hebrew to Greek creates a significant change in meaning where in Isaiah, the prophet speaks of freedom or liberty for the captives, Luke uses the Greek word ephesis, which means forgiveness. This means that a more literal translation of what uh, Luke 4 is saying is that Jesus was sent to proclaim forgiveness to the captives and forgiveness for those who are oppressed in fact, in every other instance that this Greek word is used in the New Testament, it appears in the context of the forgiveness of sins. That gives a very different emphasis to what Jesus is saying here about the Holy Spirit's vision for justice. Jesus is talking not just about external freedom, 
but internal freedom as well. A significant part of God's just order is about receiving and participating in his forgiveness. True justice doesn't end with outrage. It doesn't even end with the righting of wrongs. We know this if we've ever worked really hard to win an argument. The satisfaction of knowing that you were in the right and the other person was in the wrong and that you had the final word, it doesn't last very long. Once the dust settles, the far less conspicuous work of forgiveness begins. Different ones of us might struggle more or less with that. I know for my part, I'm very good at saying the right things. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, there's no hard feelings. Yes, of course it's okay if you take the bins out tomorrow instead. But I know that time and time again, I struggle to offer grace to the people around me to say, I forgive you and to mean it. But the Holy Spirit's vision of justice requires forgiveness. Without it, we burn out. We remain bitter and jaded, frozen in place, unable to move forwards or to imagine a different kind of world that the Holy Spirit wants to build through us. We will know injustice in our lives, in our relationships. We see it in the world around us. But that's not where God wants to leave us, in the outrage, in the despair. Jesus came to declare that through the Holy Spirit, we can know the internal freedom of forgiveness. A forgiveness which roots out the resentment and the bitterness which is at the heart of injustice in our world. If we let it, this forgiveness can reshape how we act and who we are. We started this evening's service um, with the song Amazing Grace. Um, we've probably all sung that a few times by now. It's an old hymn, and over the many hundreds of years that it's been sung in faith communities like ours, it's accrued a really deep spiritual significance. What started as an account of one man's conversion became heavily associated with the abolition of slavery and with black liberation. In perhaps its most famous rendition in recent years, Barack Obama sang it at the eulogy for the nine black church members who were shot and killed in Charleston during a Bible study. This was an attack that was widely believed to have been racially motivated. When I watch the video of that eulogy, I'm moved to tears nearly every time. And it's not actually because of Obama, it's because of the leaders who are standing behind him, the church leaders. Their faces are inexplicably joyful. Without a doubt, these are people who knew the injustice of the world. That injustice had walked right into their church building, like ours tonight, and had made itself known. But as they sing those well-worn lyrics of amazing grace, it seems like they also know what it is to be set free by the Spirit's forgiveness, to stand up and to keep fighting, 
to keep declaring the truth of who God continues to be amidst unthinkable evil. So as we draw to a close tonight, I want to ask us this. Do we know that hope and forgiveness of the Holy Spirit? Do we know that internal freedom? And are we ready not just to keep it to ourselves, but to use it to bring light to the dark places in our world where the fight for external freedom is still raging on? What might the legacy of our lives be if we truly lived out that simple but most challenging of Jesus' commands? Freely you have received. Freely give. The book of Micah puts it this way. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Libby.